Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you now. In episodes 20 and 21, I shared stories about families who were full-time residents in what became Algonquin Park in 1893. In this final episode on that topic, I wanted to share with you stories about the Hamilton Haskin family of Madawaska. The current patriarch, John Haskin, I met several years ago while researching my book, Governor Smith's Ontario Retreat. Though not technically part of Algonquin Park, for reasons I'll soon share, their ability to live successfully on Victoria Lake, 14 kilometers from anything close to civilization, has been for me one of the most remarkable stories I've ever been able to uncover in my Algonquin Park story-collecting career. Their story is part of a bigger story about Governor Edward Curtis Smith, who at one time owned nearly 25,000 acres of land just outside the Eastern Park boundary. But to set some context for this episode, in 1895, just after the Ottawa Arnprior and Parry Sound Railway was completed, which I've talked about a few times in my podcasts, Edson Chamberlain, who was the then general manager of the Canada Atlantic Railway, parent of the Ottawa Arnprior and Parry Sound Railway, was able, beginning in 1896, to obtain over several years ownership of a great amount of land around Victoria Lake. Even after extensive research, I've never been able to find any records to indicate how on earth he was ever able to do so. Chamberlain built himself a hunting lodge on the south end of the lake, and soon after deeded acreage to Governor Smith, who built a large 14-bedroom hunting lodge at the north end of the lake, near where the lake empties into the Madawaska River. The 1871 census showed that the area around Madawaska wasn't completely uninhabited at that time. In fact, the census records 394 residents in 84 households. Most of the 270 men worked in the bush at various lumber camps in the area, but about 80 were farmers, who likely sold everything that they could grow to the lumber camps. Ferdinand Offray, for example, was a 38-year-old tenant farmer who had cultivated five acres, five acres of improvements including a house and a barn on what is now part of the Smith and Chamberlain patented land near the former Opiongo colonization road. He had a horse, a milk cow, 44 head of cattle, and a carriage or sleigh. In 1871, Offray with his wife Philemon produced 100 bushels of oats, 200 bushels of potatoes on half an acre, six pounds of butter, and had cut 23 cords of wood. He was still farming in 1881. One son, Joseph, must have died as he was not mentioned in the later census. Instead, there were five more children for a total of six between the ages of two and 14 years old. Interestingly enough, all four of his daughters were named Mary, though with different middle names. According to great-grandson John Haskin, whom I met, Wilmot Hamilton's father David left his studies with the School of Pharmacy at Scotland's Glasgow University to become a soldier and gunner with the East India Company's Bombay Artillery, 
a standing private army in India that was later taken over by the British Crown. After suffering war wounds and contracting malaria, David Hamilton was granted a campaign medal and immigrated to Canada to take possession of a colonial land grant in the bush near Maynooth. He married a girl with Pennsylvania Dutch roots who gave birth to Wilmot in January of 1868. Unfortunately, both parents were not of good health. They both died in 1880, leaving poor Wilmot an orphan at the age of 12 years old. The only worldly goods he was left with were a team of workhorses and a medical book from his father. In those days, there was little schooling available, and the only job prospects for a young man with few skills but knowledgeable of horses was in the lumber trade. According to his grandson, Will Hamilton, Wilmot Hamilton spent the next ten years in the bush. He worked, as Will noted in a family memoir, in snapping cold and summer heat from dawn to dusk, cutting trees and later driving a team of horses in lumber camps. He became quite good at handling horses, so in the spring and summer off-season he was often hired by folks in the neighboring towns and villages around Maynooth to help wherever horses were required to haul or carry. For those not aware, as Ottawa journalist Ron Corbett wrote in his book One Last River Run, In the heyday of lumbering and rafting on the Ottawa River, it would have been teams of horses that rotated the wood and moved the logs from one place to another. There must have been hundreds of teamsters, those who knew how to handle horses in the bush in eastern Ontario and western Quebec in the 19th century. Horses and men who knew how to work them must have been the kings of any lumber camp. After about 10 years in the bush at the age of 22, Wilmot Hamilton met and married Victoria Ramsey from a family with loyalist roots who had originally homesteaded in Maynooth, Ontario, and lived in nearby Belleville, Ontario. Wilmot and Victoria's first son, Garance, who was always called Guy, was born in the summer of 1890. In the late spring of 1897, Wilmot, with his horses, was helping James Haskin and others with the building of a barn at Chamberlain's Hunting Lodge at the south end of Victoria Lake. Allegedly, Chamberlain himself came to visit during this period and asked Hamilton if he'd be interested in a full-time job as caretaker of Governor Smith's newly built hunting lodge on the north end of the lake. It didn't take long for Wilmot and Victoria to decide that working for Smith would be a good next step. They waited until after the September birth of their fourth child, a daughter, Catherine, and in late October moved into a log cabin just to the west of where a tennis court was later laid out. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been able to figure out why building tennis courts in the bush was such a thing amongst the Canadian upper class, but it sure seems to have been, as the flex on Rock Lake did this exact same thing. The closest I've come to any understanding is in a book called How to Be a Victorian by Ruth Goodman. In one of her chapters on leisure time, she talks about the fact that it was Henry VIII in the 1530s that enthusiastically embraced tennis that had arrived in Britain from France in the previous century. Apparently in the 1870s, with the demise of croquet in England as a popular female pastime, outdoor lawn croquet courts were converted into lawn tennis courts, and the rest, of course, is history. By the 1890s, there were close to 300 tennis clubs in England 
and a tennis court, quote, marked out in one's garden became a potent symbol of respectability and wealth. In addition to Guy and Catherine, the Hamiltons had two other girls, Bertha, who was almost six years old, and Alma, who was just three and a half. Today, it's hard to really comprehend what it must have been like for Wilmot and Victoria Hamilton, with their four young children, to move to Victoria Lake in the fall of 1897. In late October, most of the fall colors would have been long gone. The only means of transportation would have been via horse-drawn Democrat in the summer and by horse-drawn sleigh during the long winter. Unless it had been a calm day, rowing across the lake with the water just about ready to freeze would have been tough going and probably would have chilled everyone to the bone. On most nights, the temperature would have dropped below freezing, although likely not much snow would have yet stayed on the ground. Only a small wood stove would have heated the small cabin that they moved into. Wilmot would have had to bring all their belongings and enough supplies to last for quite a few months, if not the whole winter. The lake would have been impassable until it froze solid, which was usually not before late December. As nephew Will Hamilton wrote in 1988, Often the children would not get out from freeze-up in late November to break-up in late April. Most medical services was supplied by Victoria based on some practical training that she likely would have received from a country physician. With the aid of salves and portions made from the plants that Wilmot would concoct, and a huge doctor's book handed down from Wilmot's father and the usual patent cures of the time, she successfully treated everything from broken limbs to diphtheria. According to Governor Edward Smith's mother Annie, in a set of reminiscence she wrote about in 1840s, Vermont, which likely were still valid 50 years later, quote, the pharmacopoeia of those days was exceedingly simple. Herbs were gathered when in blossom, catnip for nervous babies, the mints, St. John's wort, tansy, rue, sage, and caraway seeds for decoctions and flavors, burdock, yellow dock, Spinard and dandelion roots, spruce twigs, and wintergreen leaves were gathered for beer and to cleanse the blood. No good housekeeper was deficient in these remedies stored away on the rafters of chambers or garrets. Camphor, paragoric, and opodeldoc were kept in the medicine cupboard. A doctor was called in only for surgical or extreme cases. Now for those unaware, Paragoric was a household remedy in the 18th and 19th centuries widely used to control diarrhea in adults and children. It was also used as an expectorant and cough medicine to calm fretful children and to rub on their gums to counteract the pain from teething. Opadeldoc was a camphorated soap liniment with a soft, semi-solid consistency. Two other stories about Victoria's resourcefulness included one from Herb Hamilton, that suggested that his mother's cure for diphtheria was to insist that the children gargle with kerosene. The idea was that by burning their throats, the children would be able to breathe. Another story had Victoria using a prized silk scarf, a gift from Mrs. Smith, to bind a severe laceration that one of her boys had suffered. The silk disintegrated over time as the wound healed, similar to the way that stitches disintegrate today. Having a horse at Victoria Lake was vital for survival, 
So quickly, Hamilton built a small stable to house it and additional livestock, including pigs, chickens, and cows, that were later bought. Later, Smith kept two horses named Patty and Tim. Patty was gentle and reliable and lived to be nearly 20 years old. Tim was a little feistier. According to family folklore, he liked to kick and bite, but was big and powerful, a tireless worker, and always raring to go. He'd be let out in the morning and would stay outside most of the day if the weather were nice. In his later life, the only person that Tim would let shoe him was Wilmot's fifth eldest son, Tom. Tom's son, Will, recalled stories that his father used to share. These two horses skidded logs for the year's firewood, including maple, beech, oak, and some birch. They hauled the huge dead pines that were used for kindling and 30-inch thick blocks of ice from the lake to fill two large rooms in the ice house, which was the only means possible for keeping meats and vegetables cool and fresh in the summer. Sometimes, with the help of a teamster and his team from Madawaska, the horses pulled the rope on a steel block to slide the cakes of ice up a ramp to the growing tiers of 30-inch ice cakes on a sleigh. The sleigh would then be hauled to the ice house and the ice packed in sawdust. The resident horse also pulled wagon loads of hay to the stable and then pulled ropes to slide the bales up the ramp to the loft. This loft was insulation for the stable below that housed the horse and usually four cows during the winter. It also provided a warm secret place for children to play in the days of booming cold. Another Hamilton grandson, Cal Taylor, son of Wilmot Hamilton's third eldest daughter, Catherine, who spent many a summer in his youth on Victoria Lake, remembered, I used him to skid hardwood logs from the bush to a skidway near the stable. Get the harness on him and hitch him to a couple of logs in the bush and it was almost impossible to hold him back. I had to run with him. One time I fell and Tim took the logs into the skidway and maneuvered them just to the place they should be. He didn't need me at all other than to fell the timber and hitch onto the logs and then roll them onto the skidway with a cant hook. I think Tim enjoyed himself, thundering down towards children summer or winter and then veering away from them at the last moment. Though it was impossible to be totally self-sufficient in the Ontario backwoods, the family did try as much as possible to do so. In the garden, Victoria grew potatoes, turnips, lettuce, carrots, radishes, cabbage, and tomatoes. Unfortunately, the deer and other forest creatures often, quote, ravaged the crops in spite of fences and alert dogs. There was also a smoke pit to smoke trout and bass for later winter consumption. Bins full of sand were used to store root crops and barrels were used for the storage of apples. According to Will Hamilton, strawberries marked the coming of the summer heat. Around the scything grounds, the routine work was done. Women in aprons and children with red-stained mouths filled honey pails. The next step was usually a more exciting expedition to, quote, the little farm, the remains of Elias Moore's farmstead that was nearby, with tea and egg sandwiches. August brought raspberries and blueberries. Sometimes there were expeditions to the Bear Hills north of Madawaska, where the pickers would come back with 70 or 80 pounds of berries, the raw material for jam and preserves and pies. In the fall, the cranberries ripened. Grandma's patch was on the lakeshore, just over the hill from the cedars in front of the house. The big patches, the ones that yielded water pails full of berries, were on the river between the two rapids. Cranberry sauces, cranberry jam, and cranberry muffins were lovely to mix with thoughts of the dark coming winter.
berry-picking expeditions in the summer were regarded with different degrees of enthusiasm by different folk. Most of the expeditions were holidays, picnics, when men and women and children did an essential task but made it a game with treats and competition. Another source of entertainment in early spring was when the maple sap started running. Again, as Will Hamilton wrote, Maple syrup time was one of the seasons of joy. It was the coming of the spring after the long winter. The gully overflowed, children made paddle wheels from their grandfather's wooden cigar boxes, and everyone tapped trees and emptied the sap buckets. By the old log, a gigantic fallen pine behind the workbench, the big black iron cooler bubbled on its tripod of two-inch pipes. Day and night, adults and children attended it, piling on maple logs, using a balsam bough to stop it from boiling over. And finally, at the end of the run, the liquid was thick, gallons of it. Dippers of hot syrup traced streams in packed snow, streams that became toffee, warm and delicious, and consumed in quantities limited only by the capacity of little constitutions not to become sick. Jars of syrup were packed away in the basement for the next winter. Jars were kept on hand, on pantry shelves for pancakes and for sweetening. Muffin tins were filled with a heavy residue of thickening syrup near the bottom of the cooler. These would become the maple sugar treats for Christmas and other special occasions. Responsibility for the care and feeding of the pigs and the horses and the chickens and the milking cows fell to the children as they got older. In the wintertime, the cows were milked in the small dark stable but during the summer months they would be taken to the little farm to graze. No matter what the weather, before dawn from spring to the coming of the snow, the children would row or paddle with Uncle Edgar, leading the way to the old lumber camp to check in on the cattle and milk them. As Cal Taylor shared, During the years that I visited in the summer, generally any resident boys would go with Edgar for the adventure of finding the cows and bringing them in to milk. Edgar would send us off to find the cows and then take us to the pantry, where there was a milk separator and a wooden barrel churn. There we produced thick creams, skim milk for the pigs, buttermilk to drink, later with donuts to reward us for our success, and large pats of fresh butter. Fall was also the season for slaughtering and storing of meat for the winter, and venison and grouse hunting supplemented the usual diet of raised meats. Wilmot and later his sons Guy and Tom would shoot and dress deer that they'd shot, which would then be hung up in the woodshed to season. Sheila Hamilton, who was married to Tom's son Will, remembered stories that were often shared of Victoria's shooting skills, including the shooting of an eagle out of the nearby pines that was harassing her chickens. As she went on to say, Wilmot Hamilton was in his seventies when he shot his last deer. His son Guy was famous for never missing. Whenever people were out hunting, if Wilmot heard a shot, he would say that Edgar or Art had shot at a deer. But if the shot came from the area in which Guy was hunting, he would say that Guy had shot a deer. Wilmot was not a man to waste his breath on flattery. During the winter months, when the snow was deep, the deer always had a problem finding enough food. One of the children would go down river to a cedar grove and cut branches for the deer to eat. That was the main reason they didn't hunt during the winter months, as the meat often tasted like cedar. Alas, as Will shared, deer were food and deer were pets, the most famous of which was Bessie. She was an orphan doe that the family saved and nurtured. 
During her long life of fifteen years, she went away in winter, but always returned in the spring with her fawns. She liked to be fed, petted, and sprayed with insecticide during bug season. She was also the cause of the antler-deer-only hunting rule for all hunters in the area. Finally, there was Bambi, a buck that Tom had found, starving and almost dead near a wolf kill that had been his mother. Bambi grew up to be a different kettle of fish, for he hung around. He liked to skid into the house, rip out screen doors, butt heads with the dogs, and race with the horse Tom. Probably his strangest activity was in hunting, following the hunter like a healing dog, even to the kill. However, in the mating season, Bambi liked to wander, and even though Edgar decked him out with a two-inch red ribbon round his neck, eventually someone shot him and was even so cruel as to hang the ribbon in a nearby tree. With the help of Tom, Edgar and any other visiting sons, Wilmot would shoot and dress the pigs, then salt and store the meat in wooden barrels. As Will Hamilton shared, The young folk were allowed to watch the scaling and shaving of the pigs and the skinning and cutting of meat, but not the killing and the bloodletting. Everyone enjoyed the meat, some frozen and some pork salted in wooden barrels. There were always chickens, chickens for eggs, chickens for eating, chickens to feed, water and clean up after. Another amusing story that Cal Taylor shared was the time that Tom bought 25 small pigs and kept them up at the nearby old lumber camp in the stable. He fed them skimmed milk and bran until they were able to roam around with the cows. According to Cal, there were never any fences around the property, and had they wished, the livestock could have roamed all over Canada and the U.S. The pigs thrived and grew to a good size, and one year, come the late fall, Tom was getting ready to sell them to the lumbering people for their camps. But a snowstorm came up with a heavy snow and the pigs could not move in it. Tom was wondering how to solve the problem when Uncle Jack Haskins shot one of the pigs, hooked up a harness to the horse, and pulled it out to the lumber camp. The rest of the pigs were able to follow the trail the dragged pig made back to the lumber camp. I think it's time now for another musical interlude. And once again, I have the Wakami Whalers. Take a listen to their song, Take This Land, from their Waltz with the Woods album. Take this land and save its soul. Save for me as I grow old. Let us share both lake and tree. Safe and sound for you and me. I took a walk across this land. I feel the earth is like a man. It must be held along through time. It must be saved for all mankind. Take this land and save its soul Save for me as I grow old Let us share both lake and tree Safe and sound for you and me I saw the cold of rock and snow The roaring waves as they come home, the different lakes of size and name, no far apart, can feel the same. Great white pines rise, 
touch the sky Are there for me To climb so high And for a stand So proud and green We'll still be there We'll still be seen A field of gold As land stays free The river runs And cleanses me When set aside For all to share We do what's right We show we care Take this land And save its soul Save for me I grow old Let us share Both lake and tree Safe and sound For you and me Take this land And save its soul Save for me As I grow old Let us share Both lake and tree Safe and sound for you and me. When the entire Smith family was in residence, usually in August each year, there was plenty of paid work for Hamilton's sons and daughters. John Haskin recalls his grandmother, Bertha Hamilton Haskin, saying that when she was young, she would work as a cook in the summer for $2 a day, from 8 a.m. in the morning until 11 p.m. at night. As Will Hamilton shared in 1988, wood was cut in the bush, log skidded or hauled out of the bush to a skidway over near the stable, and then cut for all the furnaces and stoves. The big house alone had, I think, four furnaces that took four-foot-long lengths of firewood, usually birch or maple. It also had two coal-burning hot water heaters in the basement. Daily tasks included the setting of fires in all of the fireplaces, keeping the wood box full, keeping firewood and coal in the stoves, emptying the garbage and taking it to the garbage dump down by the dam, checking to make sure the water tank was full and, if not, pumping water from the well into it, the rolling of the clay tennis courts whose clay came from England, mowing the lawns and clearing brush from the trails, rowing the smiths and guests around the lake while they trolled for lake trout. All of the buildings had to be maintained. Tom was usually the lead man in all of this work and liaised with Grandpa and directed the work. All the boats and canoes had to be painted and varnished, pump house and water tower kept in good repairs, as well as the ice house. All of the Hamilton daughters helped with the cooking, cleaning, laundry, and sometimes looked after the various children of visitors. Wilmot's fourth eldest daughter, Hester, took a liking to supervising the children, such that when she came of age, Governor Smith's son, Gregory, hired her as a nursemaid, and she moved with them to St. Albans, Vermont. There she met and married Jim Willis, the son of Smith's coachman. Willis later went on to have a successful career as an insurance broker. Another Hamilton daughter, Edith Laura, who apparently was the smallest and liveliest of all of the Hamilton daughters, became the cook's helper and also eventually left Victoria Lake with the Smith family and moved to St. Albans. 
There she met and married Edward Bean, whose sister Gladys later married Edgar Hamilton. According to Cal Taylor, Laura seems to have been well known to all the townsfolk of St. Albans, if not all of Vermont. One of her elder year birthdays, we went downtown and found banners and signs in nearly all shop windows declaring, Happy Birthday, Laura. Later, Cal Taylor also recalled, I often wondered how Grandpa managed on his very small salary to have so many people living with him or visiting, especially in the summer. Grandma was always used to cooking for a large group, and though the dining room table would sit about eight people, sometimes there would be two sittings in order to get everyone fed. Grandma would not allow anyone at the table until they'd washed. We used to have a sink and a couple of pails of water beside it. Warm water came from the reservoir on the cook stove. A long, endless roller towel was used for drying. There was also a bench outside the old summer kitchen with water and a wash basin. Later, Tom and Dave, the third eldest Hamilton son, set up an indoor water system. Tom had an open-top tank built from the sheet metal, which he set up in the attic of the house. He set up a hand-operated wobble pump in the basement with pipes and foot felt down into the well. I've forgotten how many wobbles it took to pump water up into the tank in the attic. In addition to summer vacations, Governor Smith loved to come in the fall to hunt and in the spring to fish. Occasionally he would come for a short visit in the winter, but would stay in his private rail car parked at the Egan Estate Station. In the early years, he joined Chamberlain's various hunting parties, and in later years would invite colleagues and friends from Vermont. The only known deadly accident in the Hamilton family of 12 kids was the loss of grandson Billy, who was the son of Wilmot Hamilton's son Tom. He'd been given a toboggan for Christmas on which he was playing in front of the Hamilton home. From the marks of the toboggan track, it looked as if he'd been sliding down the gully which led downhill to the dam. The toboggan had been deflected by a small tree onto the ice at the entrance of the sluiceway in the dam, and from there into open water. As cousin Cal Taylor shared many years later, Art and I were up at the inlet fishing through holes in the ice. After we got lines set and a fire going on shore, we heard shouting, ran out to the point and saw Edgar at the distance shouting and waving his arms. We knew something was wrong and went to meet him. He was shouting that Billy was drowning. Billy's father, Tom, heard the shouts and ran down to the river below the dam and jumped in. He was able to find Billy, but it was too late. This was a very sad time for all of us because we all loved Billy. Art and I snowshoed out to Madawaska, which was very rough going as the snow was soft and deep. Art reported Billy's death to the authorities and ordered a child-sized coffin to be made in Barry's Bay and sent to Madawaska. I think Len Alec and his team took us back to Victoria Lake. Len was hired every winter with his team to haul wood, help with the ice cutting, and the bringing in of the hay. Billy was laid out in the coffin in the front room, I think, and the next day we all left for Madawaska with Billy, and a service was held at the United Church in Madawaska. Of all of the Hamilton sons, Edgar Hamilton probably had the most difficult life. Born in 1911 with a crooked leg, Edgar had a rough childhood, as in addition to the challenges with his leg, as a baby he'd fallen off a couch while nursing from a bottle and had a very long cut on the side of his face. One year, upon the advice of a Smith guest, Smith took Edgar to see some medical specialists in St. Albans. 
They tried to straighten out his leg, but unfortunately the incisions that were made wouldn't heal, and the doctors were forced to amputate his leg. For years he wore a peg leg, resulting in a life of constant pain due to boils on the stump of his leg. Later, Smith was able to arrange an artificial leg for him. When older, he used to hang it over the side of the canoe when he was swimming. It had a hole in it, and Edward used to say that there was a mouse that lived in it. Yet even with these challenges, Edgar had an ongoing personality, and everyone loved him. In addition to having a great sense of humor, Edgar was a fabulous storyteller. This talent first became obvious the winter that Governor Smith hired a private tutor for the Hamilton children. Edgar wasn't one to pay much attention to his lessons, but one time he was told to compose a story about Moses. Now, according to Will... Edgar got busy right away and seemed to be enjoying the work. When finished, the teacher read it and burst out laughing. As Edgar had written, We needed meat badly, and Ma asked if I would go out hunting and see if I could find some Moses. I set off down the river, and near the first deep eddy below the second rapids, I saw the Moses. I was a long way from it, but I took a good beat on it and shot it in the head. I gutted Moses and then went back to the ho- got the horse and hauled Moses to the stable, hung him up, skinned him, and took the hide out to Madawaska, to Mrs. Jocko, to make moccasins out of it. With this storytelling skill, Edgar, even with a limited education, became the premier babysitter for the Smith children during their summer visits. As a result, when Edgar came of age and expressed a desire to leave the woods, Smith offered him a job in his factory in St. Albans, where he met and married Gladys Bean, as previously mentioned. Once the lake iced over in the late fall, and after cars became the primary mode of transportation, rather than horse and buggy, an ice road would be created across the lake, as Will Hamilton shared. As early as possible, and for as long as possible, Guy and Tom would make car trips across the ice to Madawaska, hauling supplies and mail. There was no snow plowing. There were only tire chains, shovels, and manpower to move any bogged vehicles. During Christmas, just after World War II, two cars went through the ice on the same day. Tom's Gray Dort went through the ice at the Lodge Dock, and George Haskins, James's son, 1938 Chevy, that nephews Wilmot and Elgin Haskin had borrowed, went through near the Big Island. Guy and Tom used ice saws to cut holes through the ice and then grappled the cars with a hook until it caught on something solid. They then cut a narrow passageway, attached a winch, and hauled the cars to shore. Then they cut a large hole, set up a tripod, and hauled the cars out of the water. Poor Elgin and Wilmot had to spend their entire Christmas vacation figuring out how to dry out their Uncle George's car and get it running again to take them back to North Bay. Luckily, they were successful in that endeavor. The close relationship between the Hamilton family and Governor Smith continued. As their father aged, Guy and Tom and Herb took over more and more of the day-to-day responsibilities for overall caretaking. As mentioned previously, three of the Hamilton children left Victoria Lake and settled in Vermont. The third youngest son, George Hamilton, initially thinking that he didn't want a life in the bush, went also to St. Albans for a time. Later, he realized that he loved the outdoors better than factory work and returned to Ontario. A few summers later, Laura came to Victoria Lake with the Smiths and brought her sister-in-law Beatrice, 
Beatrice and George hit it off and soon married. They settled in Madawaska, where George went to work for the Ontario Department of Highways. Unfortunately, George's life was cut short when he left unattended a twig that had gotten caught in his ear. It grew into a tumor which eventually killed him in 1954. Another Hamilton child that had a difficult life was Wilmot and Victoria's eldest daughter, Bertha. According to family members, Bertha was good-natured but quiet. She probably spent most of her youth looking after her 11 younger brothers and sisters. Perhaps longing to escape, at the age of 14 in 1907, she married Jack Haskin, the fourth son of Chamberlain's first caretaker, James Haskin. Though an engaging personality and clever, no one ever had an unkind word to say about Jack. He was not a family man. Though he did some trapping, he spent most of his life wandering across northern Ontario looking for work, and sometimes with his children in tow. A 1934 North Bay Nugget newspaper article shows a photograph of a rickety two-wheeled cart being pulled by two dogs that contained all the worldly possessions of Jack. His 14-year-old son Elgin and 10-year-old daughter Thelma. The trio was on the road intending to walk nearly 300 miles from Eagleheart, Ontario, to a farm just south of Aurelia. Nevertheless, the uncomplaining Bertha went on to have three more children with Jack and raised them all, mostly on her own, and sometimes in dire conditions. As a result, according to her daughters, Thelma and Ethel, Bertha was what was then called a poor man's cook, which meant she could make a lovely meal out of what others would think was nothing. She never measured anything. She never had a recipe. Just a pinch of this and a handful of that. If you didn't watch when she was on the go, you couldn't tell what it was that she put into it. Alas, Bertha died quite young at age 66 in 1959. Jack eventually returned to Madawaska, but died in Ottawa in 1965. The others of the Hamilton children included Curtis Wilmot, who was born in 1899, David James, born in 1901, Lila Merle, born in 1908, Herbert Ian, born in 1909, Arthur Emerson, born in 1912, and finally Gordon, born in 1914. They all left for new and exciting adventures, but most would often return for family Christmas celebrations. The death of Governor Smith in 1935 coincided with the decline of the railway as the primary mode of transportation in this part of Ontario. This meant that the Smith family visits became fewer and fewer over the years. But at Victoria Lake, for most of the 1930s, life continued on as it had for the previous 40 years. The Hamilton family continued to be responsible for all of the property upkeep, although few funds were available for maintenance so the property began a 20-year decline. Disruption came suddenly in 1939 when Britain declared war on Germany. Canadians jumped at the chance to do their part and the Hamilton and Haskin men were no exception. Wilmot's sons, Herb and Gord Hamilton, grandson Wilmot Haskin and James' youngest son Stanley, were away for almost six years. As a consequence, the war years brought much silent worry and much writing of letters as Will said. Luckily, all of the sons and grandsons of the Hamiltons returned from the war mostly unscathed. The only near calamity funnily happened on Canadian soil. 
as was recounted by several Haskin family members. Wilmot Haskin was a member of the elite Queen's Own Rifles of Canada, and at 8.12 a.m. on D-Day, he landed on a beach in Normandy at Bernier-sur-Mar. The regiment quickly broke through the German coastal defenses and battled its way inland. Shortly after D-Day, Wilmot was wounded and blinded in one eye by fragments from an enemy mortar bomb. He was returned to Canada in 1944 and discharged from the Army in October 1944, in time for deer hunting season in November. He teamed up for a hunt with two of his uncles at Victoria Lake. When Wilmot did not show up at the rendezvous at the appointed time, his uncles started to search for him. The next day, soldiers from Camp Petawawa arrived in Madawaska to help search for their lost comrade. The lights of their camp lit up the village like a city. Fog closed in, making an air search impossible. There was much concern that Wilmot, who had lost the sight of one eye, had fallen and hurt the other eye or could not walk. On the second day, Wilmot, who was getting hungry, came upon a ranger's cabin and went in, hoping to find something to eat. However, he found only a porcupine, which he hit with a stone. He ate a hind leg raw and tied the other one to his belt for his next meal. From a high hill, the two uncles, Tom and Guy Hamilton, spotted Wilmot walking down below them. They calculated that if he had continued in the direction in which he was going, he would have come out of the bush at Aylan Lake between Madawaska and Berry's Bay. They took Wilmot to his grandfather Wilmot Hamilton's house at Victoria Lake and telephoned Dr. Post, who soon arrived to tend to him. He was allowed only sips of broth to start with, but recovered quickly, as you would expect a soldier to do. So the excitement was over, there was no real harm done, and another story was added to the history of Madawaska and its people. At Victoria Lake, with Wilmot Hamilton in his late 60s, only Guy and Tom were actively involved. To supplement his income in 1946, Tom built a grocery store in Madawaska. According to Thelma Haskin, one side held groceries, including even large rounds blocks of cheese, and the other side held shelves full of dried goods with a few hardware items in the middle aisle and a pop cooler. He even built a walk-in freezer with a large display window so that customers could view various cuts of meat. Other items, such as rifles, men's suits, could be special ordered on request. In the early years, there was even a pool table in what later became the Hamilton's living quarters. In the late 1950s, a private bush telephone was installed and rested on the wall near the door, which was used to access Victoria Lake. When Tom was busy at Victoria Lake, his younger brother Art, with his wife Marie, ran the store, as did his nephew Cal Taylor and his wife Vi at one time. Art and Marie later opened their own store across the highway, and Guy's son Garrence, with his wife Edna, later ran Hamilton Esso gas station. At one point, it was speculated that over 25 Hamilton-Haskin-related families were living in or around the village of Madawaska. Over the years, some moved on with their lives and settled elsewhere, from St. Albans to Ottawa to Cobalt, but the Christmas season always brought everyone back to Victoria Lake. As Will Hamilton remembered, Sons and daughters, uncles and aunts, all would descend on Victoria Lake. There was skiing, there were hockey games, on an ice rink cleared on the lake. There was the great Christmas tree hunt, followed by the decorating, and all kinds of good things to eat and drink. Always there was the cake and the cookies, gifts for St. Nicholas that the children would leave. 
and always there was the chingling of sleigh bells at midnight and then a restless night until dawn when the children could see their gifts under the tree. After the arrival of Guy's family, from the other side of the lake where they were living at the landing, there was the formal coming of Santa at Wilmot's house and his formal presentation of gifts. However, once all of the children had left home, it was difficult for Wilmot and Victoria to get used to the silence. As Cal Taylor shared about a visit during those years, Grandma fussed around the kitchen a lot. I would peel potatoes for her and Grandpa, usually about two or three. Then I would return later and find that Grandma had made Grandpa peel more potatoes, way more than they would need. I found many surprises in the pantry. Pans full of rotten oranges and lemons under the refrigerator, and the fridge full of leftover food. Poor Grandma had been so used to taking care of a large family, she just couldn't adjust to having only her and Grandpa to feed. In 1954, the property was sold. The new owners supported Wilmot and Victoria, who are now in their 80s, in staying on the property as long as they wished. This they did until 1955, when they then moved to Madawaska. As was stated at the time, After all, Wilmot has been a great character in this district for so many years, and knows so much of the historical background that we find it not only most interesting, but of great value to get his knowledge of the past 60 years in this country. We know now something of the great friendship that existed between this grand old man and the late Governor Smith, who must also have been a man of great force, ability, and personality, as we hear him quoted continually by the Hamiltons. As a Canadian, I feel we are very fortunate that such an outstanding American as the late Governor Smith took such an interest in our country. I hope you've enjoyed the story of the Hamiltons and Haskins at Victoria Lake. If you'd like to read more about Governor Smith or Edson Chamberlain, check out the Friends of Algonquin Parks bookstore and look for my book, Governor Smith's Ontario Retreat. Twelve Children Raised on Victoria Lake is an amazing legacy. I've also posted a large collection of pictures that I have of the family on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. The one of Mom and Pop Hamilton, with many of the kids all lined up according to age, is quite something. As is another that shows some of them who had musical talent playing various instruments on the porch of the lodge. Thanks again for joining me on this Algonquin Defining Moment, and I look forward to being with you again next episode.